0: Listening to the Miracle Word Podcast, we believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth Jr. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. Today is going to be, I would say, part teaching. And it's going to be part rant today, um, which I enjoy doing. Hey, Julie. But um, take a minute to share this broadcast because I'm going to deal with in this video, this episode, three Christian doctrines that absolutely ruin people's lives, absolutely ruin people's lives. And I mean that. And i'm not I'm, that's not clickbaity. i mean i mean i I've been in ministry full time now for twenty years. It's coming up on no it's twenty years and um i I can tell you from um it's not guns and roses though it's souls and roses. I don't hear anybody redeeming the times um thank you t j uh I, when I tell you ruins people's lives, i mean actually. Brings them into ruin, brings them into destruction, um, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna deal with these three Christian doctrines that are uh, life ruiners, no question about that. And um, I want I want to start. If you have your Bible, if you're making notes, and again, thanks to everybody that's helping me out in the comments, because note without question, there will be people that will ask. You know, they'll be like, um, you know, what was that verse? What was that scripture? So just please help me out. Put it in the uh, comments for me as we list. The verses of scripture helps a lot. Um, I'm starting in John chapter 8 today, verse 32. John 8, 32 is going to be where we begin because it sets the stage for all of these things today. But Jesus is teaching, and in the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter 30, I'm going to read verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So that's, uh, John eight thirty one. but let me, let me just emphasize that one more time. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So get that to be a follower of Christ is to be a disciple of Christ. What Jesus is saying is that if you don't abide in his word, then you're not his disciple. If you don't abide in his word, then you are not his disciple. Verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free without question. And so there is no freedom outside of the truth of God's word. That's the origin. It is the thing that brings freedom into any person's life. So if there's an absence of the word in your life, then there's going to be an absence of freedom in that area of your life. That's why if you've ever heard me teach on faith, or maybe you've taken our uh, faith course in Miracle Word University, by the way, if you didn't know we had that available, you can check it out at MiracleWordU.com, the letter U. Um, It's online training, Bible training, and uh, we have a, a course called Mountain Moving Faith, But within that course, I teach about the fact that faith is compartmentalized. You say, what do you mean by that? What what does compartmentalized faith mean? Well, it means that you can have faith in one area of your life, but then have absolutely no faith in another area of your life. It's possible to have faith in one area and no faith in another area. Faith is not just a blanket across the board. That, you know, if you've got faith, you've got faith for everything. No, it doesn't work that way. And the Bible proves that. Uh, You can have faith, for example, for salvation, faith to be saved, but no faith for healing. You can have faith for healing, but have no faith for financial increase. So it's compartmentalized. And the way that we know that that's true is because uh, the Bible says in regards to saving faith in Romans chapter 10, that uh, the gospel is the thing that's preached that causes men to be saved right uh, romans 10 17 without or excuse me romans ten seventeen says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god so it is the hearing of the word preached that produces faith in your heart and that's why uh the preaching of the word is so vital and preaching proper doctrine is so vital because it produces faith but then if we go on you can see passages of scripture where people had faith for one thing, but had no faith for another. Uh, A great example is Acts 19. Paul encounters 12 men in Ephesus and says to them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? What was their answer? We've not even heard there is such a thing as the Holy Ghost. So they had faith to believe in God, but no faith to receive the Holy Ghost because they hadn't heard teaching or preaching on it yet. So you can have faith for one thing, but not another. and so you have to understand that the truth is what sets you free. If you abide in my word, Jesus said, then you're my truly, truly, you're my disciples. So true disciples of Christ abide and know the word of God. Amen. Put that in the comments to start the day. Uh, True disciples know the word of God. True disciples know the word of God. So uh, the reason that we base what we believe on the scripture is because that's how it has to be. This is not subjective truth. This is objective truth. This is God's standard of truth. So I wanna deal with these three um, Christian doctrines that truly do ruin lives. Um, I will tell you that um, without question, I believe that uh, the first one I'll deal with today, the first one I'll talk about is the doctrine of cessationism and i want you to put it in the comments if you've never uh heard that word before i'll actually put it in for you and that's that's what it looks like that's how it's spelled cessationism um and it sounds more uh difficult or complex than it actually is Uh, Cessationism is just the belief that the uh, operation of the apostolic gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, miracles, signs, and wonders, prophecy, tongues, and interpretation, all these things that they ceased. They ceased when the last apostle died, that they ceased, Um, meaning they, they stopped working so let me give you the breakdown of, of what that means. That They believe, people that are cessationists, they believe that these apostolic gifts uh, stopped operating after two major things took place. What are the two major things that they believe took place that now we no longer need those things? Number one, the formation of the New Testament church, the establishing and the formation of the New Testament church. The second thing is the establishing and completion of the biblical canon. Now that we have all of God's word revealed to us and delivered to us, then we no longer need apostolic gifts. We no longer need miracles, signs, and wonders. We no longer need prophecy or in tongues and interpretation, whatever, because we have the church established and we have the canon of scripture that has been given to believers. Um, and so to uh, set this up, they will base this belief. It's one of the verses that they'll go to is first Corinthians chapter 13. And they will uh, read verse eight or they'll refer to verse eight often, um, which says this first Corinthians 13, eight love never ends. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll I'll know fully, even as I have been fully known. Verse thirteen. So now faith, hope, and love abide; these three, but the greatest of these is love. And so, they will. Uh, they'll read this passage and say, "Well, you see that." Um, the Bible says prophecies will pass away, and they have, and tongues will cease, and they have, and knowledge uh, will pass away, and, and it has. And, and what they're saying is they believe that what Paul is speaking about here has already taken place, that it was the establishing of the church, that it was the, uh, the completion of the canon of scripture. Now, none of these things are necessary. And they'll point to things like uh, the apostles had miracles, signs, and wonders to prove to their listeners That the message, this new message that they were preaching was from God. That was the whole point, that the miracles and the signs and the wonders were the proof or the evidence that their new message, the gospel, was from heaven. But now that we have established the church, now that we have the Bible, we don't need those miracle signs and wonders anymore, and they've passed away, and they're not for today. And a lot of times they'll point to this 1 Corinthians 13 passage. But as I just read it to you, apparently, I mean, hopefully it's apparent to you that you can see it's evident that this is not talking about the establishing of the church. It's not talking about the completion of canon. Paul is referencing when we get to heaven. Paul's talking about when we get to heaven. Notice again, he said, but when the perfect comes the partial will pass away. And look at this, verse 12. uh, For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Well, are you face to face with God? Are you face to face with Christ right now? No, you're not. You're still on the earth, in your temporal body, with your finite mind. You're not in heaven yet. And so we have not reached the place yet where Paul is saying that these things will pass away. Well, here's a question. Will we need prophecy in heaven? No. Will we need tongues or tongues and interpretation in heaven? No. Will we need to have that knowledge of no, because when we get to the perfect, all those things will be unnecessary and so they will pass away. Now love abides forever because God is love, right? God is love. What else? Faith abides forever. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hope abides forever. These things will go on forever. And so understand those won't cease, but the others will. But that's not now. We're not in that time today. We are still in a place today where we need the moving and the operation of the Holy Spirit. We still need the power of God uh, to move and to operate. Do you know uh, the same thing that took place then takes place now. I've watched it happen for my entire life that people maybe that have never been saved, that have never had an experience with the Lord, will see or experience these miracles, signs and wonders happening and their heart automatically is open to the preaching of the gospel and they receive Christ and they're delivered. From a life of darkness, out of that place of being dead in trespasses and in sins, regenerated and brought into the kingdom of God. Amen. And so, the same thing, that's right, Robert. We need the Holy Ghost now more than we ever have. And so, this false message, and it is a false message of cessationism, is damaging. Now, I'm going to go further with this, and you might be, you may have never heard somebody uh, be as. as serious as this in, in that uh, as harsh as this, I believe that that message of cessationism is a demonic message. I believe that it is a doctrine of devils. And I'm not, uh, believe me, I'm not just throwing things around. I, I When you saw the title of this video, I truly believe it's a doctrine of demons, of demons that seeks to suppress the operation of the mighty Holy Spirit. I believe that it is a doctrine of devils that Paul prophesied would come that seeks to suppress the operation of the mighty Holy Spirit. Amen. God does not change. The power of his spirit does not change. What could have taken place between the cross, between the day of Pentecost? What could have taken place between the lives of the apostles till now that God would have said we don't need the operation of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ any longer. In my mind, that is straight up foolishness. It's straight up foolishness, as I said. I believe it's a demonic agenda to suppress the movement of the Holy Spirit in today's church and in today's generation. We need the moving of the Holy Spirit. We need the gifts, the nine gifts, Of the Holy Spirit as defined by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We still need the gifts of healing. We still need the working of miracles. Now I'm going to tell you something. The last original Apostle to die was John the Revelator, if you're not familiar with that. He was the youngest of the Apostles. He's the one that wrote the book of Revelation. He was the last original Apostle to pass away. The problem with their theory, even via church history, is that what they claimed did not happen. What these cessationists claim, when the last original apostle died, when the church was established, when we had the, the canon, you know, and you know, the apostle John wrote the last book that's considered canonical scripture, the book of Revelation, last book to be written. But even if you study church history, you will clearly see in the writings of the early church fathers, such as. Polycarp. Polycarp was a direct understudy of John the Revelator. He sat at the feet of John the Revelator. So Polycarp. Um, Irenaeus, who sat at the feet of Polycarp. Irenaeus. You go back through these um, church fathers that we have plenty of their writings. Plenty of their writings. You know what you'll find when you read it? That they were still seeing miracles, signs, and wonders. Were they the original apostles? No. No, they weren't. Was the church established? Yes, it was. Did the, did the full canon exist, the full canon of scripture? Had it been delivered to the believer? Yes, it had. However, Polycarp, Irenaeus, go back through all of these guys. You know what you're going to find out? They were still seeing miracle signs and wonders. They were seeing the dead raised. They were seeing healings. They were seeing demons come out of people. And even Irenaeus writes in one of, his, uh, one of his writings that he experienced that they were speaking in other languages. And some people even believe that that's a reference to tongues. They were speaking other languages. And so these men, after the original apostles in early church history, continued to see the moving and the operation of the mighty Holy Spirit. The, this this is not something that, well, John's dead and all the miracles are gone. <laughs> John's dead. So so um, then what are you going to say? Well, you know, the Holy Spirit faded it out. He faded to black like a movie. I was like, what's the point of fading to black? What's the point of fading out the miracles? Why are they fading out? If the work has been done that's necessary, they should stop immediately. They should just stop. There's no fading out. Why would the Holy Spirit fade out? He's done his work in their their opinion. It's already finished. Why is there, no, there's no fading out. These things are still in manifestation and operation today. This is a teaching that I believe is demonically inspired to suppress the mighty power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. For example, for example, um, why would we have New Testament passages given to us that we can't even obey today. Do you ever think about that? If these things have passed away, then why would we have New Testament passages written to the church that we can't even obey in our current day? Let me give you an example. I'm here in First Thessalonians chapter 5, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and as Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Thessalonians in his closing, notice he says in verse 16, I'll start there, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Look at verse 19, do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies but test everything, hold fast to what's good, abstain from every form of evil. You see that? Don't do what? Don't despise prophecies. Well, according to the cessationists, uh, prophecies are something that has passed away, right? Something that doesn't exist anymore, according to them. Well, no, we don't need prophecy anymore. Read First Corinthians thirteen eight. Prophecies will pass away. Uh, you know, speaking in tongues will cease. Well, according to them, prophecies don't exist anymore. And if someone is claiming to prophesy, it's a deceptive spirit because prophecies don't exist anymore. Well, then how are we supposed to obey this uh, uh, passage to first of First Thessalonians? Now, you, you can't. It'd be very inconsistent for these guys to say, "Well, we need to look at these letters as written to all of the church." Well, here's here's something that's written to the church that we're not to uh, despise prophecies. What are you going to say? Well, that was only for the Thessalonians. And there are some people who say that that was only for the Thessalonians. It's not for us only for the Thessalonians because they had still prophecy available to them. No, no, there's nothing that has stopped the Holy spirit from inspiring men and women to prophesy nothing, nothing. There's nowhere in the Bible that teaches that again, that first Corinthians passage is in regards to heaven when we get to heaven, um, let's go on further. First um, Corinthians chapter fourteen, again, Paul dealing with this uh, the manifestations of the Holy Ghost in the the Corinthian church, and of course, as you know, the fourteenth chapter he's dealing very extensively with speaking in tongues and prophecy. And uh, what does the Bible say in the thirty? Uh, Well, let's start reading in verse, now let's just read verse 39. So my brothers, this is 1 Corinthians 14, 39. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Well, that's just for the Corinthians, brother. That's just, no. Earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in Order. And again, if you're unfamiliar with 1 Corinthians 14, it's in the context of a public worship service, not in your home, but in the midst of other believers at church or a public worship service. He says here very clearly, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. There's nowhere that you're going to find in the New Testament where you're going to, you're going to build the doctrine that tongues, all these things have gone away. They've, they're, they're missing now from the church. In fact, one of probably the harshest critics, somebody that was a cessationist, taught at a school, a uni- like a seminary. I'm talking about a seminary that is a cessationist seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, DTS. He was a professor on staff. His name was Dr. Jack Deere. He wrote a book entitled Surprised by the Power Of the Spirit if you've never heard of that I would check it out excellent book he was a professor at the seminary and he wrote a book entitled surprised by the power of the Spirit so here's what he did he said you know I've realized that I have been doing what I've told my students never to do which is to read through the scriptures with a predetermined bias He said, I've been reading the scriptures my whole life because it's how I came up in church, how I was raised with a predetermined bias. And he was a cessationist by default. It's what he'd always been taught. It's what all of his pastors believed his his spiritual leaders. And he believed it and he claims by default. So he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back through the new Testament with no predetermined bias in my mind I'm going to just read through and properly exegete scripture and I'm going to come out the other side and see what I believe. And finally, when he finished, his quote on the back of his book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, no logical thinking Christian can read through the New Testament and come out the other side a cessationist. No logical thinking Christian can read the New Testament and come out the other side a cessationist. This is a man who already was and was a professor and was teaching this doctrine at a cessationist uh, seminary. And so, and by the way, I would recommend that book to you if you've never read it, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. Excellent book. Dr. Jack Deere with an E on the end, D-E-E-R-E. And so I truly believe that cessationism is a doctrine that destroys people. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has been sent to what? Be our comforter, be our guide, to empower us. It's the power of God. It is the anointing that raised Christ from the dead that now dwells in our bodies. It is the anointing that allows us to lay our hands on the sick and see them recover. It's the anointing that inspires the believer to operate in the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're nine gifts, but it's still one self-same, the Bible says in the King James, spirit. And so uh, to suppress the moving of the Holy Ghost, to despise prophecies, to forbid speaking in tongues, you are actively going against commands of scripture. And again, I reference John 8, 31, That if you don't abide in the word, you're not the true disciples of Christ. So by resisting the work of the Holy Spirit, you are resisting the word of God. And by resisting the word of God, you are not a true disciple of Christ. That's why it's so demonic. That is why it is so extremely dangerous to subscribe to the thought process of cessationism. It's foolishness. It's pure foolishness. And God does not change. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so number one, the first doctrine that I would be aware of and stay clear from is cessationism. Um, I'm going to, this next one's going to be, I'm sure a little bit, and thank you, Tiffany. I believe that's probably Tiffany putting these things in the comments for me. There's the book. Why am I, why, I, oh, he, oh, up, updated it. He updated his book. Why I'm still surprised by the power of the spirit. So that must be a second edition to his original surprised by the power of the spirit. Wow. That's amazing. Um I'll have to get that one. I didn't even know he put a second one out. Uh the second doctrine that I want to deal with today, and I know this will be controversial. I know this will be controversial because it's been very uh it's been very trendy again, and of course it's exist for existed for hundreds of years. Uh, <laughs> without question, but it is, in my opinion, the doctrine of Calvinism, reformed theology. I believe that the doctrine of Calvinism is dangerous. I believe it's dangerous. You say, why Why do you believe it's dangerous? Uh, can't we just believe to, to coexist? We could. There's absolutely people that I know that are uh, reformed believers, uh, Calvinist in their thought process. And I you know, I love them, but I totally disagree, and I believe that Calvinism is a danger to believers. I believe it is a danger to believers. So why do you believe that it's a danger? Why do you believe that it is something that ruins lives? Well, uh, let me explain that to you. And if you're not familiar with what Calvinism is, this, this is the, um, the basic thought process of the reformers. When they broke from the Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation, um, we're looking at John Calvin, Martin Luther, etc., that believed in this uh, this doctrine that we call now Reformed theology, uh, Calvinism, based on the works of John Calvin and his Institutes. But um, the reason I believe it's a dangerous concept is because of the way that it um, the way that it interacts with man, that it, it claims that men are un, they're, they're incapable of receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. So at its core, and I want you to hear this from me today because I'm not misrepresenting Calvinism. This is truly what Calvinism is defined. And I'll, I'll give you a small nutshell breakdown of what Calvinism truly is defined. Um, they believe that men are incapable of receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're incapable because all men are dead in trespasses and sins, which obviously is true, that's scriptural. All men that are not saved are dead in trespasses and in sins. There are none righteous, no, not one. Everyone is born in sin, shapen in iniquity. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of those things are true. You are born into sin and you have to be redeemed if you're going to become a Christian, go to heaven. All that's true. However, Calvinism posits that you cannot by any way, shape, or form receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is impossible for any person across the board, across the board, to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in order for you to become regenerated, then it is only and totally a work of God and his decree that you become a Christian. That not only did you have nothing to do and this is where I won't take a lot of time because it's a it's a longer debate, but that you had nothing to do with your salvation whatsoever and that God has just picked you out of the crowd before the foundations of the world and chosen to regenerate you based on nothing of your your own, um, basically none of your own choices, nothing that you've done, nothing that you believe, not believe. It's God's monergistic choice to save you. Mono meaning one, Uh, Monergism is that, that you have nothing to do whatsoever with your salvation, that God does it all. Which means that you are just someone God chose, but you didn't believe the gospel. God made you believe the gospel. You didn't have a capacity to believe it. God made you believe it. So to break it quickly down, there are five things that Calvinists believe that define their theology, their salvation theology. Number one, and they use the, I don't know if they use it, but the acronym TULIP, like the flower, has been used for many years to define what, in a nutshell, Calvinists believe. And again, I'm not misrepresenting this. Roberto can hold me uh, you know, accountable if he would. But uh, number one, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. These stand for the five points of Calvinism. The first is total, depravity. That men are so totally depraved in their sins and in their wickedness that they have no way to believe the gospel. It wouldn't matter if I sat you in a chair and did nothing but preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you 24-7 for the rest of your life. You don't have the ability to receive or believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because you are totally and utterly depraved. So what does that mean? It means that God will do a work in the people that he's chosen. So we move on to you. The U stands for unconditional election. Unconditional election. That means that God elected you. He chose you by no conditions uh, of your own. Unconditional. Totally unconditional, meaning it's not because of your race, it's not because of uh, who your parents were, it's not because of what denomination you grew up in, what part of the world that you're from. It's unconditional. God looked through the tunnel of time and before the foundations of the world, He chose you by no conditions. It was His own decree to choose you individually. He unconditionally elected you and chose you. So now, Um, because you're totally depraved, the only way you could believe the gospel is if you are one of those elect, if you're one of those people that God chose from before the foundations of the world. And then we move on to the L, which represents limited atonement. Limited atonement. What does that mean? Limited atonement means that Christ did not come and atone for the sins of the whole world, but he only atoned for the sins of the elect, the ones that uh, God chose from before the foundations of the world. So Jesus' blood was not shed for everyone, according to Calvinists, but only for those whom God elected from before the foundations of the world. Otherwise, his blood was uh, uneffectual, right? Because all of the people that remain sinners and go to hell, uh, Christ's blood didn't have power for them because uh, it didn't work. For those people, they they weren't redeemed. So Christ's blood fell to nothing for those people. So his blood is only for those that God chose from before the foundations of the world. And that is the elect that were unconditionally elected. So that's T-U-L, total depravity, Unconditional election, limited atonement. We move on to the I. The I represents irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. And what this says in a nutshell is that if you are one of God's elect believers, that when the gospel does come to you, and by the way, it will. Because if he chose you, he will make sure that the gospel is presented to you at some point in your life. And when it does come, you will not be able to resist the grace of the gospel. You will be converted. No question about it. If you are the elect, at some point, the gospel will come to you. And not only will it come to you you won't be able to resist it meaning you will not be able to hear the gospel message and reject it you will accept the gospel you will be made to because you can't choose it this is god's doing this is god's decree you'll be made to receive and believe the gospel which leads to salvation which leads to salvation and so they believe you'll not be able to resist the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's irresistible grace. And then finally, the P is representative of something called, and I'll I'll give you two versions of it, either the perseverance of the saints, means that they'll continue to persevere in righteousness until the end, or it's also called the preservation of the saints. Depending on who you talk to, it's either the uh, preservation or the perseverance of the saints. All that means, in a nutshell, is that if you're a true believer, if you're truly elected by God, then you will continue in acts of righteousness and holiness, remaining true to the word of God and remaining true to the gospel for your entire life until either you die or until Jesus returns. And that will be the proof that you are truly elect. That will be the proof, your perseverance, your preservation. And if you fall back into sin, if you fall back into a life of iniquity, then you didn't backslide, you were never truly saved in the first place. That's what they say. You didn't backslide, you were never truly saved in the first place. This is, a, this is a teaching that is very dangerous for a few reasons. Again, as Robert said, you have to go around a ton of scripture to believe this way. However, let me speak specifically about number three, limited atonement, because that's, that's a slap in the face to Jesus and, and his atoning work that Jesus didn't die for everyone, he just died for the elect. He only died for those that he chose. Okay, well let's read uh, real quickly, just a verse of scripture, and this is probably the most controversial of the five points of Calvinism, which is why that you not only have five point Calvinists, but you have four point Calvinists as well, uh, because they'll leave this one out, because they say, well that's too much. That, that's too much. Um, but uh, the famous and late R.C. Sproul said that if somebody claims to be a four-point Calvinist, then it's because they truly don't understand the five points of Calvinism. And they think they have a problem with limited atonement, but he said what they really have a problem with is unconditional election, right? He said they think their problem is with limited atonement, but it's not. Because if you truly understood it, your real problem would be with unconditional election. Because what you don't believe is God has the power to choose individual people to save. Because it's not about how they get saved. It's about the fact that he chose them to be saved. So limited atonement's not the issue for you. Unconditional election is. He chose you before the foundation of the world. And so this is what they believe. However, this is a very uh, slippery slope, but I don't believe it because look at First uh, John chapter two. First John chapter two. Let me read you verse two. This is a pretty hard one to get around right here. This is a pretty hard one to get around. Are you ready? I'll read you verses one and two. This is first John chapter two verses one and two. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, look at verse two. He's the propitiation for our sins. He's talking to Christians here for our sins, but look at this and not for ours only look, but also for the sins of the whole world. How do you get around that? How do you read that verse of scripture and then continue to say, well, Jesus' blood's not shed for everybody only for the elect brother not according to the not according to John who's inspired by the holy spirit to write the inerrant inspired word he said little children it means he's speaking to christians here he said christ is the propitiation for our sins but but not for ours only but for the sins of the entire world everybody's sins everybody's sins and so I'm gonna give you a reason why I believe that this is such a dangerous doctrine. The reason I believe it's such a dangerous doctrine is a a few reasons. Number one, first of all, it steals from you the assurance of your salvation. Now I've listened to the top of the top of the top scholars in the uh, reformed world for hours on end because I'm not just gonna talk about something I have no knowledge of. I've I've listened to the top scholars in the reformed world for hours on end to hear their take on this. I've listened to their formal debates for hours on end. And you know, one of the things that sticks out to me that's very sad is that even these men who have given their lives to studying the mighty word of God, who've given their lives to teaching the word of God, they themselves cannot declare with any degree of certainty I am one of God's elect. How sad is that? That you give your life to the teaching of the word of God, to living for God, to studying the word of God, and you still, at 60 years old, 70 years old, you cannot say with any degree of certainty, I am one of God's elect. I am a Christian. You can't say it. You know why they can't say it? Because of the fifth point of Calvinism. That the only true proof that you were God's elect is that you continue in works of righteousness to the end of your life and he that endures to the end shall be saved. The end of your life or Jesus comes while you're still serving God. That's the proof that, yep, you were God's elect. But sadly, they have to say, because of their doctrine, they have to say, well, am I a Christian? I don't know. I guess we'll find out When I die, we'll find out when Jesus comes. Because you know I don't know. At at some point in the future, I may fall away. And if I fall away, it's just proof that I was a false conversion. They say that. They say that out of their mouth, publicly. I may fall away later in my life. And if I fall away, it's just proof I was a false convert. And they can't have assurance of salvation. What a sad place to live. What a rough place to be. That's just one area. The other area is that if I believe this doctrine of Calvinism, one of the sad things is that it strips from me, strips from me my urgency for evangelism. Let me give you that quickly. It strips from me my urgency to win the lost. You say, why would it strip from you the urgency to win the lost? Because think about it logically. You'd have to be a dummy to think that Calvinism actually uh, engenders passion for the lost. It absolutely does not. It does the opposite. I actually heard uh, Dr. John MacArthur one time asked and he was in a question and answer session, and a Calvinist, because he's a Calvinist, and they asked him, based on what we believe about the Bible, why should we continue to evangelize? You know, the elect are going to hear the gospel anyway. They're going to hear it. God's going to make sure they hear it. And when they hear it, they'll be saved. So why should we continue to evangelize? You know what his answer was? Because the Bible tells us to. That was his answer. The reason that we should evangelize is because the Bible tells us to. We're commanded to, so we do it. No, no, no. It strips from you the urgency. How can you read John chapter 9? What Jesus said to his disciples, he didn't seem to think. Now, let me go back there. John 9, 4. If you've never seen the gospel of John chapter 9 and verse 4 in its context, how can you read this and think that Jesus was teaching them a doctrine of election? No, no. He was pounding urgency into their spirit. He said, um, let, let me read to you verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day for night is coming where no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. You see that we must work the works of him who sent me while it is daytime for the night is coming. That's urgency, man. Why would Jesus not just say, well, you know what? My father's got this under control. You know, you don't need, don't worry yourself. Just go on about your life. Serve me. You know, but don't break your back trying to get the work done. It's not about you. God's going to make sure that the people who need it get the gospel. And then he's going to bring them in. And I'll not lose one of these that the father's put in my hand. So don't even worry about it. No, no, no. He's preaching urgency. Work while it's yet day. For the night is coming where no man can work. Mark chapter 16, we see the great commission. I'm not going to get into the controversy of the longer ending of Mark, but if we read the uh, the Great Commission, go into all the world, Mark 16, 15, and proclaim the gospel to all of creation, and whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. I don't see uh, here where we're looking at this, anywhere in this context, where it's giving the feeling to the preachers of the gospel. Go out into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. And those that are meant to believe will believe. And those that aren't meant to believe won't believe. No, no, no. That's not what this is teaching. You have to add a lot of things into scripture to believe this, but it doesn't put an urgency in your spirit to win the lost. You say, well, you know, God will get them. They're elect, they'll get in somehow. No, 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 that's not how the Bible teaches that we're to be. We're supposed to have a compassion for the lost like Jesus did. We're supposed to go after the lost like the apostles did. We're supposed to go out into the highways, into the byways and compel them to come in. Why do I need to do any compelling? Why am I, like, get this in your spirit. I know I know that this has probably been debated somewhere, but you know that that passage of scripture, go out into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. Well, here's the question. Why do I need to do any compelling if God has already decreed their salvation? Why do I need to do any compelling if it's a one-sided work? God will do it. I don't need to compel anybody. I don't need to compel anybody to come in. God will monergistically save them based upon his decree. I don't need to do any compelling. That's, That's a contradiction of doctrine. It's not based on me or my preaching or my compelling. It's based on God's decree, right? That's how they believe. So you have to get around a lot of scripture to believe this stuff. And it's destructive to the believer. It creates complacency. Thank you, Roberto. I love you. It creates complacency. It creates laziness. It creates a jaded spirit for the, because you know what will happen. If you're a logical thinking person like I am, and like many of you are, Then you'll look at them and say, you know what? Those that aren't saved, you know, they're meant to be not saved. God actually chose them to be not saved. So who am I to try to change that? I mean, God made them that way. He wants them. It's part of him showing his judgment, part of his righteousness. And again, I'm using verbiage from the Calvinist camp. You know, it's part of his judgment. It proves his righteousness. Romans chapter nine. What if he wanted to create vessels of wrath for his own destruction? That's his right. He's the potter. He's the potter. so who what do I care? you know if if they go to hell, that's part of God's glory that some are saved and others are created to be destroyed in the fires of hell for all of eternity separated from God. you know that's his desire when the Bible clearly says that he's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. and of course they'll twist that and say, well what that means, brothers, that he's willing that none of his elect should perish. No, no. He's willing that none should perish. It's not just for our sins again, but for the sins of the whole world. He's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So you, I don't believe that it's a scriptural uh truth that God created some people for destruction. I do not believe that. He's not willing that any should perish, but that men will end up in destruction because either they've rejected Christ or the church did not do her job to preach the gospel as she should have to reach those people with the gospel. Because let me tell you, if someone does not have the gospel, they will go to hell. There's only one way to heaven. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said in Romans 1:16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. There's no salvation without the gospel. Well, I just believe God will find a way to get to him if I don't, he won't. Because it's not his job to get to him. He sent us. It's our job to get to him. Amen. So I believe, I believe that Calvinism is a dangerous doctrine that ruins lives. It will ruin your Christian assurance. It will ruin your evangelistic lifestyle. And it'll ruin your compassion towards the lost and towards people. Without question. Without question. Finally, before we do anything else, the final... The final doctrine that I believe ruins lives is the doctrine of hyper-grace. And I've spent time on this broadcast. I've spent time on this broadcast uh, dealing with the hyper-grace doctrine, how it's heretical, how it's demonic, how it's sinful. And it can be packaged any way they wanna package it. But hyper-grace is not scriptural. The way that it's being taught today. Now, I believe in grace, of course I do. Of course I believe in grace. The Bible says that God resists the proud. He gives more grace to the humble. But the way grace is being taught today, that your actions don't matter, that your past, present, and future sins are already forgiven, that you don't need to repent if you make a mistake because it's already forgiven, that it's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus did. You can never lose your salvation because it's impossible for anything to separate you from God. I will tell you, that from 20 years of ministry every not some every single pastor that i have ministered alongside who had people in their church that got entrenched in the hyper grace doctrine it has 100 percent of the time become destructive to that believer they either leave church they fall back into sin i mean all of these different things every single time, not some of the time, every time, every time it's a destructive message that makes people comfortable with sin. I'm going to say that again. This is how it ruins lives. It's how it ruins lives. That's an interesting, I'm just reading the comment. Brother Ted, as a convinced Calvinist Pentecostal. Interesting, <laughs> very interesting. Um, you talk about cognitive dissonance. That is a contradiction if I've ever heard one. I'd like to hear more about that one. Send me an email. Um, but when you get people comfortable with sin, See, God does not abide that. He's a holy God who expects holiness from his children. He said, come out from them and be separated. Be ye holy, even as I am holy, says the Lord. Be holy, even even as I am holy, says the Lord. Be perfect, even as your father is perfect. Jesus said that. Be perfect, even as your father is perfect. That blows people's minds. But do you know God has empowered you to live free from sin? God, and I want you to put that in the comments. God has empowered me to be free from sin. God has empowered me to be free from sin. And I want you to put it in the comments, Romans chapter six. And this is something that Paul writes to the church in Rome. Listen to this, let not sin. I mean, starting in verse 12, I'm gonna read through verse uh, 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. When you read that verse of scripture, the first thing you notice when he says, don't allow sin, therefore, that means that you, as a Christian, have power over sin. Amen. And I want you to put that in the comments too. I have power over sin because of your Redemption, because of your union with Christ. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So I don't have to obey the passions of sin. I don't have to allow it to rule and reign in my body. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Look at this, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Sin has no dominion over you. You know, you hear people talk, well, brother, we can't help it. You know, we we sin all the time. We sin, we don't even know we're sinning. I actually had somebody tell me that. Brother, there's times we sin, we don't even know we're sinning. I was like, oh, really? What, did the Holy Spirit get laid off? Is he on leave? Well, what happened to the Holy Spirit? Is he on sabbatical? Because if you read scripture, what you're going to find out is that one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin and of righteousness. So don't tell me you can sin as a Christian and not know you're sinning. That would mean the Holy Spirit failed at his job of convicting sin. Sometimes, brother, we can sin. We don't even know we're sinning. I don't believe that junk whatsoever. I don't believe it. Sin has no dominion over you. You know what that means? That by the power of the Holy Ghost, believers can live free from sin. That's a Sadly, that's a controversial statement. People don't believe that. Well, brother, we sin all the time. You know what? We're not perfect. We're, we're sinners saved by grace. No, I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Sin doesn't have control over me. It doesn't have dominion over me. If I sin, or if there is a sin committed, it's because I chose to do it. Not because I was made to do it. Sin doesn't control my life. It doesn't make me do anything. If I, if any believer sins, it's because they chose to sin. That's what happened. And, and that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, I must put my body under on a daily basis so that after having preached to others, I won't become disqualified. If any believer sins, now watch this now. If a sinner sins, it's because they can't help it. Because they are under the bondage of sin. They are controlled by sin and they're dead in trespasses and in sins. So if a a sinner sins, it's because they can't help it. They're under the bondage of sin. But if a Christian sins, It's because they've chosen to. Because either they didn't renew their mind, they didn't put their flesh under, they didn't take authority over their own fleshly desires, and so they just did what their flesh wanted rather than what the Spirit wanted and what the Word of God says. Big difference. Big difference. Big difference. Let me tell you something. Uh, It's like the difference between a prisoner who's already in prison and a person like me in a room. You can't go to a prisoner and say, Don't, don't be locked in a don't be locked in a room. I can't, I can't go up to a prisoner in prison and say, now listen, I'm, I'm telling you, don't be locked in a room. Why? He can't help it. He's a prisoner. He's already locked in a room. And there's nothing he can do to change the fact he's locked in a room. However, I, as a free person, which right now I'm locked in a room. Right now, I'm locked in a room. You know why I'm locked in this room? I locked myself in. I shut the door. I set the lock. I locked myself in. Now, you could come to me and say, don't lock yourself in a room. Well, I have the ability to either lock myself in a room or let myself out of a room. I have a choice. But a person that's a prisoner is in a a prison. They don't have a choice. They've been locked in and they can't get out. See the difference? It's the same with sin. You can't go up to someone who's a prisoner of sin and tell them, don't sin. I can't tell a sinner not to sin. They don't have any choice. But as the apostles did through all of their epistles, you can write to Christians or speak to Christians and say, don't sin. You know why you can tell a Christian don't sin? Because they have power over sin. You're not controlled by sin. Sin is will not have dominion over you. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You see that. And so this hyper grace makes people uh, comfortable with sin. It's demonic, it's demonic. Look at the fruit that something produces. Look at the fruit something produces. If it doesn't uh, produce fruit of righteousness, it's not from God. If a doctrine doesn't produce righteous fruit, it's not from God. If it doesn't produce in your life something that's pleasing unto the Lord, it's not from God. That's how I know that the hyper-grace message is demonic. It is not from God whatsoever. And that's why uh, I've recommended on the broadcast to you many times Dr. Michael Brown's book, Hyper-Grace. needs to be read by a lot of people in this generation. And if you've not read it, get it and read it because you'll be inundated with this everywhere you go in today's churches. The hyper grace, sounds like works to me, brother. Anytime you step up and start talking about dedication to the kingdom, obeying the word, you know what you'll get from people? Sounds like works to me, brother, I'm under grace. Sounds like works. You know why? Because these people do not, they don't understand the difference between works of the law and works of righteousness. There's a difference between works of the law and works of righteousness. What's the difference? We're not under the law of Moses. Do you see me trying to go back and and, and sacrifice bulls, goats, and sheep? You think that's what I'm doing? That I'm going back and trying to wear garments that don't have any mixed texture in them or or mixed materials? You think that's what I'm doing? (laughs) That's not what I'm doing. But works of righteousness... I've examined the doctrines (laughs) praxis works of righteousness is what Jesus called for. It's what the apostles called for. James said, faith without what works is dead being alone. Faith without works is dead being alone. God's looking for works. God's looking for you to do some things that prove your faith. Otherwise, your faith is dead. It's, it's non-existent. It's non-existent. I want to ask this question real quickly before I move on. Praxis Blockchain Technologies. Um, I don't know what your first name is, if you can give me, give me your first name. If you had to give me one book to read outside of the Bible that would solidify your position as a Pentecostal, Calvinist, so your salvation theology is Calvinist, but you believe in the, uh, Pentecostal baptism, of the Holy spirit, speaking in tongues, gifts of the spirit. If you had to recommend one book that would solidify your Pentecostal Calvinistic, uh, practice, what would be that book? And if you, I don't know what your first name is, but I'd love to know. And then, um, email it to me, email it to me or send me a message on Instagram, anywhere you want. I don't care. I'm on every platform. I would love this because I know what you're saying is interesting and I've never heard anybody talk like that. It's funny to me because I know that everybody on both sides is gonna crucify you. The Calvinists are gonna crucify you for your spirit-filled lifestyle and your belief in the apostolic gifts. But again, Pentecostals are gonna crucify you for your Calvinistic soteriology. So I would love to, uh, I'd love to hear that. But if you had to recommend one book outside the Bible that explains that viewpoint, I would love to hear what it is and I would like you to send it to me and I will read it. Trust me when I tell you, I will read it. I'm not saying that to, to, in a mocking way. I will absolutely read it because I'm not, I'm not closed down. I study the word all the time. I listen to teaching all the time. Never heard anybody that can actually, that, that can bring those two things together and meld those two belief systems because they are contradictory in almost every way. Contradictory in almost every way. So praxis, praxis Blockchain technologies. Send me a message on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, on my website, miracleword.com. You can send an email to uh, Ted at miracleword.com. I mean, get do it. Tim, Tim Dearman said, I'd read that book also if it exists. Send it because um, of reformed theology without bias. In any case, I remain a committed enthusiast supportive of your ministry. No, I, I, I mean that, please. I would love, I would love, I would love you to send me um, something that would solidify reformed theology and salvation, but also that would solidify Pentecostal belief systems, spirit filled, baptism of the spirit, speaking in tongues, apostolic gifts, still in operation today. All of those things would love to hear it, would love to read it. And thank you. If you do have it, thank you for sending it to me in advance. I wanna pray for those of you that are watching because as we come closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we need on fire believers who know what they believe and that will not back off of the doctrines, the true doctrines of the scripture that will stand for the move of the spirit, that will stand to see the power of the Holy Ghost touch people in our generation, to bring deliverance to the captive, to bring healing to the hurting, to bring salvation to the dying, and will not apologize for doing what Jesus commanded us to do and what the apostles did and what the early church did and what the historical church did we continue to do today time is running out the gospel is a limited time offer and people need Jesus before it's too late so today on this Friday before we hit the weekend I am praying for you that God would supernaturally stir you up in these last moments of time with a fresh urgency, with a fresh boldness, with a fresh compassion to do the work of Jesus before it's too late. I got so excited. Veronica sent me a, a picture. Uh, Gidalti is, is, is studying. And even at a young age, she said, I feel this call to evangelism, to preach the gospel, to see people saved. Well, Jadalti doesn't have to wait until she's 21. She doesn't have to wait until she hits a certain age. God will start using her right now. God will use you right now. And we need all hands on deck before Jesus comes back. And so I wanna pray, Father, I thank you for every faithful member of the Victory Tribe. Thank you for hungry souls Thank you for hungry believers that want to see souls saved, that want to see people changed by the power of your spirit. Today, I'm asking you that you would fill every one of us from this moment with a fresh urgency in our spirit, with an eternal mindset that Jesus is coming back and that there's a world that's hurting and dying and on their way to hell. Use us to win them to Jesus. Use us to bring the gospel to those that don't have it. Father, I pray that you would continue to give us a compassion, a love for people. Don't let us become jaded. Don't let us become uh, cold to the needs of people. But let us be like Jesus, our high priest, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities in Jesus' name. I ask you, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. And then, Lord, give us a boldness like we've never had. We refuse to be intimidated by the Antichrist agenda, we refuse to be backed down by the wickedness of this world. We will not be quieted by this cold generation, by this antichrist spirit that's roaming throughout the earth. We stand boldly to declare the truth of God's word in Jesus name. Strengthen your men and women today that are doing your work. Strengthen your people today. For those that are watching this that need a touch in their body, they need healing, touch them Lord. Touch them today by the power of your spirit. Bring them healing from heaven. We ask you, in Jesus' name, those that are battling in their minds, they're dealing with depression and anxiety, they're dealing with suicidal thoughts, set them free today. Let this be a day of freedom in their life, never to go back again. We thank you for it. People believing for family members to be saved, household salvation, let it come quickly to pass. Let this be the year that we can celebrate household salvation in the wonderful name of Jesus. We thank you. And we give you the praise today in Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Throw some hands up and give God praise for what he's doing in your life, amen. We're still here in, in uh, Elizabeth City, uh, North Carolina. I'm preaching tonight under the tent. And uh, if you'd like to join me, I'll be preaching. Start Service starts at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, that's New York City time if you're out of the country. And uh, you can find us live on YouTube and Facebook. My father, Ted Shuttlesworth, Faith Alive is the name of the channel, that's his channel. Ted Shuttlesworth, Faith Alive. And so I'll be preaching tonight at seven o'clock, would love to have you join me. But I wanna encourage you on this weekend to sow a seed into this ministry, to give an offering of faith. And you know how, if you've been watching for any period of time, you know how to do it. You can go to miracleword.com and sow your seed on the website there. But I would encourage you to partner with this ministry with me and with Carolyn as we're doing everything the Lord's asked us to do uh, around the world. Now on television in over 180 nations, feeding the poor in nations of the world, preaching live crusades, multimedia every day, touching uh, and reaching out truly to students, to young people, to children, uh, doing everything we can to get the gospel to this generation. And you're a part of that as you stand with us. And so I say a big thank you to everybody that's sowing seed. And in the month of September, I wanna put in your hand this very important book by Dr. Michael Brown, Can You Be Gay and Christian? This is one of the biggest questions Christians are facing uh, in our generation. Our kids are facing this every day. Public schools, in the culture, everywhere. Dr. Brown has done a better job than I believe anyone has answering this question biblically. And so this book, Can You Be Gay and Christian, uh, is our gift to you in the month of September as you are uh, standing with us to preach the gospel. I understand there might be people who think that's a, a funny book to for a ministry to give away, but uh, anybody that has children or anybody that has eyeballs and a brain can understand that the LGBTQIA+, and I don't know how many more letters they're gonna steal from the alphabet, but that community is operating full force and pushing back, as the Bible prophesied that they would, pushing back against the Christian element in society. Now we have churches that are, you know, rainbow flags on the front doors, ordaining homosexual preachers and priests. And we're seeing that the enemy is trying to uh, bring deception into the mind of Christians. So it's okay, we need to just accept them how God created them. This is the rhetoric that we're seeing in our generation. This book by Dr. Michael Brown will help you to understand how to respond biblically to these false claims made by that community. And it needs to be read by your children, by you. You need to read it. It will help you immensely. I love you guys probably more than you know. I appreciate being able to be with you uh, every morning, Monday through Friday. I appreciate you hanging with me and spending time with me. Again, coming up for the partners, I'm looking forward to hanging with you in person at the Victory Tribe Homecoming weekend. I really can't wait to see you. I'm very excited to see you, and it's coming up at the end of October. And so um, I'm looking forward to that very much. We got and, and basically, I wanted you to hear this. Everybody's welcome on that Friday night um, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. The church is in Bethlehem, Central Assembly of God. We will put it on our our website uh, for that Friday night. Everyone is welcome to come to that revival service. Uh, It's gonna be a powerful night. And then for our partners, we have a brunch scheduled on Saturday with you. And uh, if you've not yet registered, please do so. It's gonna be amazing. I love you guys very, very much. And I will see you again on uh, Monday morning, uh, 1030. I love you. Carolyn's back today. 2 o'clock p.m. Don't miss her. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you soon. Now, that's the stuff leaders should be made of.